So if you haven't already done so, open up to Ephesians chapter 1. And as I mentioned to you, I wrestled with whether to do a Christmas message or go to Ephesians. Um, I also wrestled with, do I just start in verse 1, just start digging in the details, or do I help you understand the bigger picture? And the bigger picture, again, won out. Because I think this helps us so much with understanding the significance of Christmas. Why is the incarnation such a big deal? Without the incarnation, none of the blessings of which we're going to look at would have happened. God used the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which we are celebrating this time of year, as the vehicle to pour out abundant blessings on us. And so I thought, what better way to appreciate Christmas than to see the blessings and benefits that God has brought through the incarnation and as a result of Christ being our God and dying for our sins and being raised in newness of life and drawing us to himself. So that kind of gives you a little background as to why we're still in Ephesians. I also want to look at Ephesians verses 3 to 14 today. It's a massive chunk of text, but I want us to see the big picture. Because when we dig into the the details, which some probably have wrestled with, there are some who have misunderstandings of doctrines like the doctrine of election and predestination. Perhaps you have um, uh, uh, just kind of bucked against those kind of doctrines and teachings in the past. I want you to submit yourself to the obedience of Scripture. Don't believe something because I said it. Believe it because Scripture says it. But I want you to see those doctrines. Everything that Paul teaches is given here in these verses that we're going to look at today are given for one purpose. That God would be exalted and praised. To the praise of his glory. Everything. The doctrine of election. To the praise of his glory. Predestination. To the praise of his glory. Your redemption. To the praise of his glory. To your being adopted as a child. To the praise of his glory. To to the sealing of the Holy Spirit. To the praise of his glory. From beginning to end. It's to the praise of his glory. So keep the big perspective in mind as we go through this text. Now I want you to think about this morning, what, what is the best gift that you have been given? Maybe it was your birthday, maybe it was a Christmas. I remember years ago, this goes back eight decades ago, growing up with my family, I had two sisters, and my mom and dad were very loving parents and always very generous, just didn't have a lot of money. My dad was an artist, you know, starving artist. That, that We never starved, by the way. Oh, he didn't have a lot of extra, but it was okay. It was okay. But one Christmas was especially uh, lean, and my parents told us there wouldn't be much this Christmas. And yet in the providence of God, he allowed my parents to find a bicycle in a dumpster. And my dad worked to take it apart, repaint it, get it working, and it was a nice, shiny new bike from my perspective. It was a wonderful present. But the present itself is long gone. But the memory of my father's love, his sacrificial love for me, lingers on. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 14 are designed to kind of bring us back and remember what God has done for us in a a present that's far more significant than what any present an earthly father can give us. In, in Ephesians 3, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, the Apostle Paul reminisces about the blessings of God. The, and the greatest gift that the Apostle Paul was ever given. And it wasn't just given to the Apostle Paul, but, but to all of God's children. Um, Paul wants to stir your soul to remember your greatest gift you've ever received. If you're a believer in Christ today, he wants you to reflect upon the gift and to allow these doctrines to cause your heart to overflow with praise to your Lord and God for what he has done or what he has done for you. You could not have purchased these gifts. They weren't for sale. 
You couldn't have bartered for them, and you certainly couldn't have earned them. They're his. A gift. His gift to all who believe. And that gift is salvation. But the way that Paul words it is talking about just the overflow of blessings. Now remember that that Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. Um, And at the same time, he's writing to the universal church. So Paul knows that the Holy Spirit is is causing him to write scripture that we will read thousands of years into the future. He is he remember in the introduction that he wrote to us in verse two, he says, grace to you and peace from from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And thinking about that grace just causes Paul to explode with exuberance. He, he can hardly contain himself. And the result of that is found in verses 3 through 14. Paul was, was quite eager to, to get to talking about the grace of God. And, and the reason, there are some hints as to why we know this. Because normally in, in a, a, a form letter, this is, this, and Ephesians follows the typical pattern of a letter of that day. You have the, uh, you know, the author mentioned first, and the recipient second, and a greeting third. Uh, what comes next usually is Thanksgiving. But notice Thanksgiving doesn't come until verses 15 and beyond. Paul does follow that pattern, but he interjects something that it isn't in the normal pattern. And that should stand out for us. It is this, this really uh, paragraph of exuberant praise to God, of the way that He has blessed us, um, He puts us. He He puts that out first and foremost for people to to see and remember as we read this. Paul was just so overwhelmed with the flood of blessings that he can't he can't contain himself, and he begins to write this literally this long treatise on remembering the blessings of our great God. In verses three to fourteen, depending on your Bible, it's it's probably broken up into three or four sentences in your English Bible. So I kind of did a little survey, unofficial survey of, of most English Bibles, put that into three or four sentences. It's one sentence in the Greek. One long sentence. Very detailed. It's, there's a lot packed into that. It's, it's complex in the way that it's all tied together. And people wonder why Paul would have, really the Holy Spirit, would have put together such a detailed and in a way complex sentence. And I'm convinced that, that the Holy Spirit not only inspired the words that are written, but inspired the form in how those words are delivered. Why do you think that the Holy Spirit would give us such a long and complex Sentence. Well, one reason is that Paul, I go say it, I think he was so excited to write about this that he could hardly contain himself. You have seen this in our own lives. We don't sometimes finish sentences. Now, Paul doesn't do that here, but I just want to give you this to remind you of that we do this. Like when my kids are really excited about sharing something, especially when they were younger, they were really excited about sharing something they heard or they saw. They began like one per, one of them would start telling me the story. But they would leave out a little detail. The other would jump in at that moment, uh, kind of interrupting to give me the little detail that was missed over here. And then another would jump in and give me the little detail. And sometimes you have to bridle and say, "Okay, hold on, just one at a time. I can only listen to one at a time. So it's almost as if Paul is in that kind of mode where he's just like so, so excited, so overwhelmed by the grace of God that he's that he's just verses three to 14 just just flows one long sentence. But I'm convinced, again, as I said, that the Holy Spirit inspired the form. He's the one that really ultimately authored this really long sentence. Why did he do that? Because he wants you to see the complexities and the profundity of his grace. What better way to convey the fact that this isn't just cheap and simple and, and grace that, that's like a mile wide but an inch deep. He wants you to see this grace is 10 miles wide and 10 miles deep and 10 miles long. It is immense. It is beyond the capacity for us to fully comprehend. And, and Paul does his best on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to convey the blessings 
of his grace. And so, so that's what we have. It's one long sentence. And so that's why I want to look at this, these verses together to give you the big picture. Then in future weeks, we will go back and look at the details. I promise there's rich details that we're not going to, to rush by. But all those little details need to be seen from the perspective of the grace that God has given us. That These things are given to the praise of his glory, right? to his glory. So that's. That's that's kind of the setting the stage for for our study this morning. Let's just read the text together. Cha- Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in our wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In him, we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. That's what this section is about. God's grace unfolded before your eyes. Now, Paul provides for us in this passage a a triune perspective on the works of God. By triune, I'm referring to the Trinity. Hopefully you you saw some of that. You caught some of that. We're going to point, I want to point that out. You have the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our redemption, in the grace. And and these, this this, this triune perspective is given to to cause you to rise up to praise your Lord and our God, to burst forth with praise and thankfulness to your Lord and God. So we're going to trace the the blessings of grace that God has bestowed upon us through the works of the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First, I want you to see that the, the Father has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. The Father has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Paul puts this forward very clearly in, in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Again, we're going to unpack the, that verse when we start back into verse 3. But but just take away for a moment the big picture. The big picture is that God has not withheld anything. There is no spiritual blessing that God has chosen to keep back from his people. This is a full-orbed, fully loaded grace outpouring. That doesn't always hit us in this world because of the difficulties in life. And sometimes we who live in the Western world live in a very comfortable state of living. We're comfortable. Life is generally comfortable. That's not true of everybody, but we generally live a very comfortable life. And so in life, we hit a little bit of difficulty, some bumps along the road, relational difficulties or financial difficulties or health difficulties. Whatever those are, we, we tend to, to think that God is somehow withholding good from us. Uh, there are people that go through this life, when they, when they hit these difficulties, they think in their minds, they, they're thinking that God owes them something different. And it's very easy for us as believers to have that kind of attitude to think that we take so much for granted 
we almost have an entitlement mentality when we encounter difficulties. And, and so this is one way we, we take this truth and you apply it to your life immediately. You have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Yes, you are going to have trouble on this earth. Expect it. The scriptures are clear about that. Our own Savior and Messiah had immense difficulties on this earth. If you think you can live here without difficulties, then you're greater than the Messiah. And you're not. So understand that in God's wisdom and providence, we're going to have trials. And God doesn't give everybody equal trials. So some some of you are going to go through more difficult things than others. That's just God's providence. Trust him. But how do you how do you get through those? One way where you can go through difficulties and still remain joyful is by focusing on something that God has done for you. He's given you every spiritual blessing. There's nothing withheld. This this life is temporary. It's not eternal. And I want you to also understand that the blessings given to us are in the heavenly places. And some of you might be thinking, well, that doesn't do me a whole lot of good here. I know that's about the future, but that's not what Paul says. Don't assume that the heavenly mean in the future. We're going to see an aspect of all these in which there, it's really transcendent time-wise. There's, there's grace in the past. There's uh Grace before time, there's, there's grace in time, there's grace now outpoured, but there's also a future grace. This, these blessings in the heavenlies are, are given to you, and, and Paul mentions in the heavenlies, not just to talk about what will happen in the future, but to assure you right now. Right now. Why is it important that these spiritual blessings are in the heavenlies? Well, if your blessings were here on earth, they would rot. We have a lot of, of mold and mildew in Ohio. Things sit around. They just you can have something really nice, really expensive, and if it sits too long in the wrong place in the wrong conditions, it just gets all yucky, and you have to throw it away. There's you can't really fix it. Um, you can also have your your savings stolen, right? The thieves break in and steal. Banks go bust, and we haven't had that too much, but it does happen. So something earthbound can be taken away from you, can be lost, can be stolen. But something in the heavenlies, where only God is at, and is reserved in heaven for you, can't be touched. No one can steal it. It won't fade away. It won't rot. It won't rust. So there's there's a sense in which Paul, by pointing to the heavenlies, is talking about something that's enduring. These blessings are enduring. And notice that, again, just every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places should cause you to rejoice, to rejoice in our Lord, to praise Him and exalt Him. And notice also that these things are given in Christ. The, the, in Christ. So if you are in Christ this morning, you have been given every spiritual blessing. It's protected for you in the heavenlies. It's not just a future uh, promise. It is a present reality. And, and again, we'll dig into more of this as we go through that. But understand that all of the blessings that flow to you are in Christ. So if you're a believer this morning, you've been put in Christ and given these things. Now, some of you here this morning might not be in Christ. You might not know where you stand with Christ. And you might not even be really aware of what it means to be in Christ. It's not just a matter of believing facts. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that he died for your sins on the cross and that he was buried and that he was resurrected on the third day, just as the scriptures say, when you truly trust in him for your redemption and salvation, you are placed spiritually in Christ. You are born again. You are given new life. The old man is dead. The new man arises. All that happens by the power of God. He does that and he places you in Christ, in the realm of Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ. And so all throughout this this passage, you're going to see the the repeated phrase in Christ or in him, in him, in Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be repeated and repeated and repeated because the blessings flow through him. There's no other way for that. So if you are not in Christ this morning, know that you can be. 
If you will but call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, then he will save you. Call upon him. You're going to see that, that Paul uses the phrase uh, hope. Set your hope upon Christ. And, and hope here is not just a, a flimsy hope, like you might say, I hope it doesn't rain too long today. You don't know whether it will or it won't. It looks like it will. But um, the, 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 point, the point is, that's a flimsy hope. The hope that Scripture talks about is a confident expectation. Not confident because you have, you know, the power of positive thinking, which is absolutely nonsense. But it, it you can be confident because God has given you His Word. That's why it's so confident. If God says it, He will do it. Now, so the Father has blessed us. It's really the first, the first action that that brings about this this outpouring of grace upon our lives. God has blessed us. God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. What else has He done? He has chosen us. Look at verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. Again, we're just doing a a treetop flyover of this. We will come back to it. He has chosen. Who Who has been chosen, we might ask? Well, here, remember, he's writing to believers, the believers at Ephesus, and by extension, application, all true Christians. He has chosen. We'll dig in and look at what that means, but just take it at its surface value right now. He has chosen. This speaks of the doctrine of election, which, again, we will will dig into. I want to try and help you understand what that means, help deal with misconceptions, misunderstandings, help deal with common rebuttals to the doctrine of election and, and choosing. We will look at that. But again, just looking at the treetop level, the Father has chosen all those who would believe. That's what the text clearly says. And, and the Father made this choice. He didn't make it in consultation with you. He didn't make it in consultation with your pastor or with anybody else. He made the choice. Now, when did he choose us? This is absolutely phenomenal. He chose us in him. Again, that's, that's, that's talking, again, that realm of Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before. Listen to that. Before the foundation of the world. This is time before time. Time hadn't even started yet. And God made the choice. Paul's point couldn't be any stronger. You had nothing to do with this choice. Nothing. The world hadn't even been established. You weren't born. Your parents weren't born. Your parents' parents weren't born. Uh, Abraham wasn't born. Adam wasn't alive. This was before time began. God made the choice. Key is, when he makes a choice, it happens. Uh, years ago, there is there is the really a, a false doctrine called open theology that said, "Well, God really doesn't know the future. He's he's still kind of figuring it out. Like he doesn't know exactly what we're going to do. He's waiting on us to make our decisions, and then he'll respond accordingly to bring about his will." Called open theism, it's heresy. The text couldn't be clear. He chose before the foundation of the world. He's not waiting to see who responds. He's not waiting to see what a mess you make of your life. And if you make a mess of your life, you know, if you if you if you go over that 50% thing, he's like, ah, no, sorry, can't can't choose you. No. Before you've been able to do anything good or anything bad, before you were, he chose. That gives you a little idea of the of the power, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. That he can do that from ages past. How far before the foundation of the world? Scriptures don't tell us. It's it's just good enough for us to know it was before the foundation of the world, before creation. And why did God choose us? Again, it's extremely clear. In love. In love. Right? Just to give you a little preview. God did not look through the eons of time into your life. And look at what good things you might do for him and his kingdom and say, I'll, I'll choose that one. Yeah, and I'll choose that one. I'll choose that one. I'll choose that one. Because what does that do? 
that makes his choice based on selfish motives. The scriptures are clear. He chose in love. Love. Love for you. He chose to set his his affections on you. Which means that he had you in his mind before he could choose you. He had to know who you would be, where you would be born, your parents, what characteristics you would have, what language you would speak. He had to ensure that the gospel would get to you because there's no other way unto salvation but through Christ and believing the gospel. So think of all that he did to prepare for you to come to know Christ. All that's packed into his little that little word he chose. He chose us in love. And, and why did God do this? It, it's not because we're going to be such wonderful people. Look at what the text says. He chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Again, he desires to make us holy. He knew when he created Adam, maybe before he created Adam, he knew he knew Adam and Eve was sin. And the whole human race would be would be led into sin. He knew that you would be born into sin. So he's preparing for us to redeem us out of that. To make us holy. Um, that we would be blameless. Listen, just think, just think about that. We, we understand the word holy and you might think of like, I don't know, uh, maybe a pastor praying or uh, I don't know, uh, a missionary who's like going out, uh, risking his life to forsake, proclaim the gospel. And those, those people are holy and they're holy. But he's talking about you. But think, look at the next phrase. Blameless before him. Just let it sink in a minute. Blameless. Blameless. You know, if, if, the, if the U.S. government started digging into your life to fi- try to find something you did wrong, you'll probably find something because all of us have probably done something wrong. Um, but this is saying is God who has much better understanding of your life and who you are than the U.S. government does. He listens into every conversation, even the ones you have in your head. When you stand before him, if you are in Christ, you will be blameless. Not not just not just in the earthly sense of like elders being blameless, above reproach blameless, but this is deep down, earnest, heart level, and outward level blamelessness before him, before the gazing eyes of God. Did you understand a little bit of why Paul is like so like excited to share about his blessings of God that he has poured upon us? Well, that's not all. How am I going to get through all this text? We're going to get there before two o'clock. So, no, I'm just kidding. The Father, to reiterate his choosing, Paul uses the word predestination. It's another action of the Father. The Father predestined us. What does the word predestined mean? He gives you emphasizing to to determine ahead of time. It it builds on God's act of choosing. Who who predestined us? The Father. What did he predestine us to? Adoption. Adoption as sons and daughters. It's a generic use of the word sons. God didn't just kind of like get us into the heavenly kingdom and say, you know, you could be in the kingdom, but not too close to me. I don't want you too close. Remember when when David uh, brought Absalom? Absalom was had kind of run off because he had killed his brother. And through some negotiation, David finally gave Absalom permission to come into the kingdom. He could live. But David never saw him. David refused to see him. And it built such bitterness in Absalom's life. God the Father is not like that. He, he brings you into his kingdom is for the purpose of making you a son or daughter. It, you're not going there to be a servant. You will be a servant. And you will enjoy being a servant. But you understand there's a sense of which you are a child of God. You are adopted as a child of God. By his, by his work of predestiny, predestination. How can a holy God adopt as sons those born in sin? Through Jesus Christ. 
And, and notice who adopts us, but God himself. In him. To himself. And, and how does he predestine us? How does he, how does he adopt us? It, it's, it's through Christ and through Christ's work of redemption. And understand, beloved, that, that what motivated him to adopt us, again, is according to the good pleasure of his will. It's another way to say he loved, but it's emphasizing a different aspect. According to his good pleasure. Right? You had nothing to do with that choice. You had nothing to do with you. God's predestined you to salvation. And, and what is God's ultimate goal in adopting us? You, you see it at, at the end of this section talking about the Father um, in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. That term Beloved is a, refer, is a reference to Jesus Christ because the Father looked upon Jesus and said, this is my Son, my Beloved Son. Listen to Him. So He is called here the, simply the Beloved. This is Jesus Christ. But to the praise of his glory. God the Father bestowed his grace upon us for his glory. Again, why is Paul telling you all this? So that you would just be exuberant with praise to God. You can read over Ephesians and just let these truths. You, know, you can just read over it without thinking about these things. So what we're doing today is just trying to get you to think about the many blessings that God has given. What God has done. God chose you before the foundation of the world. You didn't have any part of it. It's simply His grace, His love. He wanted, out of the, out of the pleasure of His will, He chose to set His love upon you. And you might say, why me? And you could say, there's no answer for that. God chose you. It wasn't because of what you did. Anything in you. There's nothing in me that, that caused God to, to choose me. It's all of, for the praise of the glory of his grace. Well, then there's the work of Christ. And we see the work of Christ in verses 7 to 12. We see him in him. We have redemption through his blood. So sometimes it's difficult to tell whether when, he's, when Paul uses the pronouns in him, it's, it's difficult to tell whether he's talking about the Father or Jesus Christ. And there's a sense in which that's just the way it is because we're dealing with the triune God. We're not dealing with three gods. You're dealing with one God who's manifested in three persons. That's a mystery to us. That's something that, that we just can't fully fathom and comprehend. So sometimes as you think about the three, then it draws you back to thinking of the one. And as you think about the one, it draws you to, to remember what the three have done. And, and, and that's, that's what's going on in this text. But we know that he's talking about Jesus because he says in verse 7, he says, in him we have redemption through his blood. The Father doesn't have blood. The Father didn't become incarnate. The Son became incarnate. It's through his blood that we have redemption. So this is his work. And when I say his work, I don't mean to separate the Trinity. Every act of God is done in unison. There are certain manifestations of the persons of God that, that that person did. Like the son became incarnate. The father chose. The father predestined. We're going to see the spirit seals. Right? So there are, there are uh, times where the scriptures use the terminology of the Trinity, of the person of the Trinity to describe certain actions. But don't get the idea that, that Jesus' Jesus's redemption was, wasn't, didn't have anything to do with the father. That redemption was planned by the father. Everything that Jesus did was the will of the Father. Jesus says that. I've come to do the will of my Father. I only do the will of my Father. The Spirit sent out by, by the Father and the Son, I would add. Right? They work in unison together. Again, they're not three gods. One God, three persons. Right? One essence, three persons. That's, again, hard to understand. But that's what the scriptures teach us. We see the, that Jesus redeemed us. We are redeemed in Christ. What does it mean to be redeemed? It, 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 it means to be saved, be rescued, to be bought back. It was often a term that's often used of, of purchasing um, someone off the slave market. If they were uh, really poor and they had to sell themselves into slavery in order to pay a debt. 
that someone, one of the relatives, could come and buy them back, could redeem them. And we talked a little bit about that when we went through Ruth. It's that idea that God purchased us. He rescued us through Jesus Christ. And how did he redeem us? It's through his blood. What is the, what is the blood? What is the reference to the blood? It's symbolic of his death. The fact that he paid a debt that we could not pay. Okay? Um, he died for us so that we could have forgiveness of sin, which is where all this leads. It was necessary for Jesus to die in order to pay the price, the penalty for our sins. And I say our sins. He paid the penalty for every sin of the elect. That's in the context. We'll unpack more of that later. A definitive atonement is what that refers to. But Jesus died so that everyone who would ever believe and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ could have the forgiveness of their sins. And this forgiveness, again, isn't something you earn. This is simply granted by His grace, according to the riches of His grace. And, and I love this term. He says that, that, that God, that the, the grace was lavished upon us. Right? So just keep that in perspective. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now we're talking about Christ's redemption, and it's still the grace is flowing full throttle. This grace, He lavished upon us. Hey, what does the word lavish mean? It means just overflowing. Right? It's just pouring out. It's not stingy. God has no limit to, the, to His grace. He doesn't have to say, well, I only have enough grace to save this number. No. He saves all that He chooses. He's not limited in any capacity to save. He's not limited in His grace. He, it just flows out from Him. He lavishes it upon us. And we'll look at all that. We'll look at the summing up of things in Christ. So don't take your salvation for granted. Don't let forgiveness and redemption be something you take for granted. It's a great gift. You couldn't earn. You couldn't buy. You couldn't barter for. It just had to be given. And it's given to you by God's grace through Jesus Christ. So praise him as you think about the, the incarnation. As you celebrate Christmas, understand Christmas had to happen. Christ had to come in order for you to be redeemed, for you to be forgiven. So praise Him. And also, another action I would point out of, really, it's in Christ. It's the, it's the Godhead doing this, but it's spoken of in Christ. It says it there in... Um, uh, I lost my place. Talking about inheritance. Verse 11. In him, we also have been made an inheritance. Now, some of your Bibles will say you have been given an inheritance. We'll wrestle with whether it, whether we've been given an inheritance or whether we've been made an inheritance. We'll deal with that when we get there. But what's, what's the big deal of an, an inheritance? Either way, we're talking about an inheritance. Whether you are the inheritance or whether you are given an inheritance, what's the big deal about inheritance? Speaking about the future. It's guaranteeing you the future. Inheritance does you no good if you're not around to inherit it. Like if you die before your father, you're not going to inherit anything. So this is a guarantee of, of your salvation. This is another way in which the, God is working, the, Jesus is working in your life to guarantee your salvation. And we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit sealing in a minute, but this is leading up to it. The reference to inheritance implies that you're going to be around to inherit something or be the inheritance. Either way, you're going to be around. You're going to be with the Father. You're going to be adopted. All these things are flowing together in this text to, to bring praise to, to God. And, and if you look at, at the end of verse 12, it goes, to the end that, that we who first hoped in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. See, each section, each section that that. Paul deals with the Father, then the Son, and the Holy Spirit, ends with that phrase, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. So that is what the Lord is doing. He's, he's telling us these things so that we might praise Him. So the Father has, has blessed us with um, every spiritual blessing. Christ Jesus has redeemed us. 
And, and now we turn our attention to verses 13 and 14 to see that the Holy Spirit has sealed you. The Holy Spirit has sealed you. So the Father has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. The Son has redeemed you. The Spirit has sealed you. And again, this takes us to the mystery of the Trinity. And the mystery of the Trinity is never fully explained, but clearly revealed. So we know the Trinity exists. We know the doctrine of the Trinity exists and that it's true and right. God is one essence, um, but three at the same time, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here, the emphasis falls upon the Spirit's work. Now, often in our language, we, because we understand spirit in English, we, we use the pronoun it. We must not follow good English on this one. The Holy Spirit is not a power. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. He. And you can see it. He's doing something here. What is he doing? Verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. To the end that we who have first hoped in Christ, sorry, um, verse 14, who has given us a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit, who has given as a pledge? It's not what. It's who. The Holy Spirit works in our redemption. And notice, again, how this works so beautifully together. Paul elaborates in verse 13. He says, in him you also After listening to the word of truth. What's the word of truth? Well, he tells us there. The gospel of your salvation. There's only one way where anybody can be saved from their sins. And that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ died for our sins. That he came incarnate. That he died for our sins. He was raised in newness of life. To show that the penalty for sins has, has completely been paid for. And, and to show that he has power over death. That he can grant uh, resurrection. That he will, raise, he will resurrect you. Though your body, if, if the Lord tarries enough, your body is going to go into the ground. And it's going to turn back to dust. The Lord will, at an, in an instant, call you forth and resurrect you. And give you a resurrected body. That's his power. And his own resurrection shows that he has that power. So there is a the vehicle of your sealing is through your believing. Uh, notice the, the sealing aspect is explained for us here. He says, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. What does that sealing do? It's the Holy Spirit of, look how he's described, of promise. The Holy Spirit is given. And in fact, that is elaborated. He says in verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. There's the word inheritance again. So the Holy Spirit becomes a, the guarantor of your inheritance. He's going to ensure that you make it to the to the end. And, and that's why we can say that if if salvation was up to us, if, I, if we had to to do enough to ensure that we're saved, all of us would be lost. There'd be no hope. If I could lose my salvation, I surely would. But the Holy Spirit works in our lives to to keep us, to protect us. And we know from the book of Jude we're told that even the Son keeps us. But we're also told to keep ourselves in the love of God. And that, that keeping is believing. Here the emphasis is completely on, on what God is doing. It's His work from, from start to finish. Do, do you see how God, He's boxing everything in? Before time began, before the foundation of the world, God's grace. All the way until when you receive or you become the inheritance. From beginning of the process to the end of the process, it's God. God planning, orchestrating, bringing it about, and fulfilling it. All in Christ. For, the, for, the bless, for your blessings. And it's all by grace. Now, this passage not only uses a triune view to look at our blessings, but it also talks about the transcendent nature of God's grace. And I've mentioned this, but I'll just highlight it. God graciously determined our salvation before time began, before the foundation of the world. Then he graciously provided for our salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. He died in time and he was resurrected in time about 2000 years ago. That's past from our perspective. 
God graciously applied his grace or he actuated our, uh, his grace in our lives at the moment we believe. For most of you in this room, that, that's also in the past. For some of you, it's, it's maybe today. Uh, for others, it may be someday in the future. Mm-hmm. But the point is that he, God is continuing to work and pour out that grace. And then grace graciously guarantees our salvation. That looks into the future. Right? So, and that is, for you, actuated when the point that where you die or the Lord returns, whatever occurs first. So there's a transcendent nature to God's grace. God's grace isn't bound by time. God's not bound by time. So he will ensure the grace flows to you abundantly. I also want to point out the wonderful use of the past tense. And I'll point this out as we go through that. Look at all those actions. The Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Verse 3. Verse 4. The Father has He chose us before the foundation of the world. Verse 6, the Father graciously bestowed on us His grace in Jesus Christ. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Just notice these terms. This isn't like future tense. This is past tense. It's, It's a sure reality. Sure reality. Uh, Verse 11, in him we have been made an inheritance, or we have been given an inheritance, however you want to translate that. Verse 13, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. Past tense actions. And then notice as well the repetition of the phrase, to the praise of his glory. I mentioned this already, but the end of verse 6, the end of verse 12, the end of verse 14, dealing with primarily the the work of of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. That's the point of all of this. That's the point of predestination. It's not to make you angry. Election is not meant for to be this doctrine that we contend over. It is meant to put us on our knees before God. To recognize that it's His work from start to finish. So however you understand predestination, however you understand election, it must be on your knees. Because that's the point of the text. To the praise of His glory. This text is meant to stimulate our praise. It humbles us, but stimulates our praise. Now my father gave me a memorable gift gift in, in, in uh, giving me that bike. I'm sure it wasn't worth much. But it's one of the gifts that stands out in my mind that that demonstrates the practical, sacrificial love of my Father. How much more when you think of what our Heavenly Father has done? My bicycles, that's a weak and in a sense a pathetic example in comparison to what our God has, has given us. That grace that has been poured out upon us for because of His love, because of the pleasure of His will. Oh, just just think about that. Just think about what God has done. Now, all of these poured out upon us, not by your own doing, but by His grace, His love. I, I want to borrow from Charles Spurgeon by just quoting him and how he reflected upon God's grace flowing to us. So allow me to read an extended quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, I know not a word which can express the surprise and wonder our souls ought to feel at God's kind, God's goodness to us. Our hearts, as prefaces say, he, he reflects upon um, how unfaithful we are. He says, our hearts playing the harlot, our lives far from perfect, our faith almost blown out, our unbelief often prevailing, our pride lifting up its accursed head, our patience a poor sickly plant almost nipped by one night's frost, our courage little better than cowardice, our love lukewarmness, our fervor but as ice. Oh, my dear brethren, if we will but think, any one of us, what a mass of sin we are, if we will but reflect, that we are, after all, as one of the Father writes, walking dunghills. 
Just think about that the next time you think about it. You just start getting a lofty opinion of yourself. You, like me, are walking dunghill. We should indeed be surprised that the sun of divine grace should continue so perpetually to shine upon us that the abundance of heaven's mercy should be revealed in us. Think about that. From the, from the standpoint of sin, we're like walking dunghills. And yet God chose to set his love upon us. To redeem us. To make us his children. In other words, you become the trophy of his grace. If you earned it, then it wouldn't magnify God so much. You'd be getting what you earned what you deserve, what you worked out. But the reason it magnifies God so much is because you didn't. You didn't deserve it. There is nothing in us to deserve God's grace. And this is why the angels long to look at it. The angels are just flabbergasted by this. That the Lord of glory would humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that he would choose us, that he would adopt us, that he would draw us into his family. Let us respond like the angels. And give God the glory he deserves to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Lord, what can we say to these great things? You have done this from start to finish. Oh, Lord, just allow these truths to penetrate into our lives, into our thinking, into how our everyday life. Maybe we would take these truths and plant them deep within us to remind us to respond with thankfulness, with just praise to the abundance of your grace which you have poured upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your immense work in our lives. And just, Lord, cause this church to be a church that praises you, that keeps these things in mind, that where we are ever thankful, living our lives with, with hearts of praise, with joy in our hearts, and with, with thankfulness because of your work. And help us to keep these things in mind, even on the difficult days, and especially through the trials that you have ordained for us, that we would walk in them. Help us to exalt you and glorify you in these things. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.